52 episodes, 52 ordinary people, 52 real stories about things that affect overall health. Because there is a lot more that goes into being healthy than food and fitness. Inspiration, support, a new perspective, and knowledge. You'll find that and more here on the HealthAbility Project. Hi, and welcome to the HealthAbility Project. I'm Robin McKenna. When we think of overall health and well-being, we most often think of the individual. But what about the communities that individuals live in? Are they healthy? And what does the health of a community have to do with the overall health and well-being of the individual? Obvious symptoms of an unhealthy community, physical blight, crime, a general lack of safety, and even the presence of gangs overshadow the inobvious, what may not be going on in the community, a connection between neighbors or a social support network. The health of a community can have far-reaching and sometimes surprising impacts on individual health and beyond. Here to share her story about one community in the South Bronx that went from unhealthy to healthy is Mary Gallione. Mary is a sister of mercy and was born and raised in Yonkers, New York. She earned degrees from Mercy, Middlebury, and Manhattan Colleges and Union Theological Seminary. She has held positions as Dean of Students at Our Lady of Victory Academy in Dobbs Ferry and Associate Pastor at St. Francis Xavier Parish in Manhattan. She is a co-founder of the Lay Spirituality Program and the Welcome Table Soup Kitchen. Mary is also a founder and former executive director of Mercy Center Bronx. The foundation of her work there is the belief that the values of welcome, community, and nonviolence are transformative. Under Mary's leadership, listening and responding to the needs of women and their families led to the organic growth of Mercy Center's programs, which presently serve more than 3,000 participants each year. Mary's work has drawn on her commitment to stand in solidarity with women seeking fullness of life and equality in church and society and her belief in the transformative power of community. She believes that the liberating power of community is the most effective way to empower participants to reach their full human potential and become agents of change in their families and communities. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mary. Hi, Robin. Nice to see you. Mercy Center actually was a bit of a happy accident. Why don't you paint the picture for our listeners on how you became involved in the community, what the community looked like, and just how your involvement evolved? Sure. Mercy Center started in an elementary school, and it started because the principal of an elementary school saw the need to work with the whole family. She was getting every program she could for the students, but she knew if she didn't work with the parents that she would not be successful in moving forward with the, her students' lives. So there was another sister of mercy, Mary Durr, who was a counselor, and she was hired part-time to help the parents. So every time a parent went to the principal's office, they were then sent to Mary Ann, and Mary Ann was supposed to work with them, counseling, and try to help them become better parents. And 
it was great. People would come for their first appointment and it'd be a good conversation, but they would never show up for their second appointment. So Marianne said, now I was asked to help the parents. So she got a social worker to do a parenting class. And so that is really the beginnings of Mercy Center. And it was great because parents were isolated. The neighborhood wasn't really safe and parents would drop their kids off at school, go home, stay in the neighborhood, stay in their own homes, only go out for necessities and then come back, pick up their kids from school, go to a doctor's appointment or whatever. But there was no socializing, say in the park or, you know, there were no strollers hanging out on the streets with moms talking to each other. So Mercy Center really met one need in that way. Another need was, it's not exactly a need, another byproduct of what happened was the formation of community. So as people were coming out of their homes to drop their kids off and be at Mercy Center, they got to know each other. There was always a coffee pot that we put on and help people stick around and chat before or after whatever program. So that was the very beginning of Mercy Center. How did the parents react to that initial parenting class that the social worker put together at the grammar school? Oh, it was very interesting because the tradition of parenting in that community, as probably in many others, was strong discipline and sometimes even physical discipline. So in learning different techniques, people were very skeptical. They'd say, oh, that's not going to work with my kids. And one parent would try one thing, would come back next week and say, you won't believe it. I tried it and it worked. And that would encourage somebody else. It wasn't just the social worker, the professional. It was one parent to another that helped them see, oh, yes, this could work. And of course, it didn't always work. So they try something else and share that with each other. So it was a wonderful bonding in community. And what happened next? Well, of course, one thing leads to another. And as I said before, I believe Mercy Center grew organically. And so in listening to the community and what the needs are, and then helping them see what was happening that caused some of the issues, there could be action for change. And one example of that is a medical waste incinerator that was in the neighborhood. And the neighborhood had a very high incidence of asthma. And of course, parents were very worried about their kids with the asthma and making that connection to this medical waste incinerator, which, by the way, had 400 violations every year. So more than one violation a day was part of the impact of air pollution and why their children had asthma. So Mercy Center joined with a large number of other organizations in the area. And together we worked with the city council. We worked with other with the company itself, with other neighborhood organizations. And it's one of the rare success stories in this kind of work. Often we do the work and we don't see the results. But in this case, the company that owns this medical waste incinerator had to cease operations. And one of the things about it was part of the agreement when they ceased operations was that there would be a public removal of the smokestack. So people could gather and watch the crane come and the smokestack come down. And uh, it was just a joyful, joyful moment to see all the work that had taken place have this result. I could imagine that. I mean, not only the fact that they were able to 
remove that medical incinerator, but how it must have made them feel, you know, that is no small feat, getting a medical incinerator removed from a neighborhood that's probably been there forever. And just the the realization that if they could do that, they could do anything. It must have created a whole lot of momentum in the community. That's very true. And we try to capitalize on those things because if you can do this, what else can you do? Right. And some of that is personal. Some of that is beyond. So another example would be how we would go to Albany every year at the lobby. And there was always something specific that we would lobby for. So one example was when funding was going to be cut from the hospital in our neighborhood and our women got all the facts and went to Albany, went on the bus, up we go. A lot of nerves. What's it going to be like to meet with my state representatives? And, uh, wow. but, you know, got their courage up and went in and you don't always meet with the state representatives. So we're meeting with a legislative aide and he saw the facts that we had, the amount of money that was being cut, what the needs were, where the money should be restored to. And the legislative aide was kind of impressed and went and got the actual legislator who listened and the funding was restored. Now, I have to tell you, our women thought that they did that single-handedly. <laughs> <laughs> Look what we did. We got the money. But it was true. In a way, they were part of a group of people who were able to express a need. So there's the personal sense of pride that can lead to action. There's also a personal sense of pride that led people to really deal with their own situations. So, for example, domestic violence is an issue in the community, as in many communities. It doesn't just exist in impoverished areas. And... People don't always realize they're in a domestic violence situation. Think, oh, this is just the way life is. Mm. And as one person would realize in conversation with another, they'd say, well, you know, it doesn't have to be like that. And as eyes are awakened, eyes are opened and people see, oh, maybe not. Because another woman who's in the same situation is telling me, It doesn't have to be like that. And so that person not only helps the person in domestic violence see what's happening, but then will be there to accompany her. Not every day, not to the courts, not that kind of accompaniment, which Mercy Center did, but also this other woman would be able to give moral support, be a companion, um, a listening ear. Mary, you mentioned earlier that the neighborhood wasn't safe. How unsafe was it? Well, one way to think about safety was personal safety as people were walking around the neighborhood. And I was in a conversation one day with about a 12 or 13-year-old boy. And I could tell he was being recruited by the gangs and I was talking to him, hoping against hope that I might be a little persuasive. And I said, you know, why is it that you want to be part of a gang? And he said to me, you don't understand. I can't walk to school safely if somebody isn't watching out for me. If I'm not protected by one gang, another gang will come looking for me. So it was really eye-opening for me to realize that it was almost felt like a necessity to be safe, to walk from home to school, that he'd be part of a gang. 
that's a lot for a 12 year old to be dealing with. Right. And it was unimaginable to me that this was ordinary in his life. This wasn't like some big decision. This was just part of his life, how he was going to navigate safely. Did the community try to do anything to either help the members in their community understand more about the way gangs work so they could possibly protect their children from being recruited or even to help mitigate or try to reduce the presence of gangs in the neighborhood? Well, the parents, the women of the community were naturally very upset and concerned about their own children and asking, what can we do about it? And one particular day, a small group of women went over to the police precinct and said, you have to help us. And what can we do to stop the gang recruitment of the gang, um, the gang presence in our area? And that took a lot of chutzpah, a lot of bravery, courage, because now they were seen by the gang members as walking into the police station. And of course, they didn't know the agenda, but it certainly came to be. And what happened was that the community women and the police gave a workshop at Mercy Center. And it was to understand the signs of being recruited as a gang, how to deal with it. And, you know, it was widely spread throughout the community so people would attend. And it was an interesting night because the gang members attended as well as the police because they wanted to see what was going to happen at this uh, at this workshop. And of course, we didn't know that, but the police did. The police knew who the gang members were. So it was, um, I guess, another sign of how omnipresent the gangs were and how powerful they felt that they could be at a meeting like that with the police. But it was one small step in trying to confront and work with mitigating the gang violence. So as Mercy Center is growing, you are witnessing the evolution of neighbor connecting with neighbor, neighbor understanding neighbor better, neighbor working with neighbor for the collective good of the community. Very true. And that's something that endures. Mercy Center began in 1990, and here we are all these years later, and the work and the connection neighbor to neighbor, participant at Mercy Center to participant, outreach that the participants do naturally, just by telling their story to their friends and neighbors, that all just continues to open up paths and possibilities. In 32 years, the neighborhood has to have physically transformed quite a bit. You know, I know when you and I were talking the other day, you were saying that it really was just a bunch of rubble. Can you tell us a little bit about that, the very beginnings, and then, you know, how it transformed? You you mentioned housing had a big impact. Definitely. So we could see from where we were located at that time in the school, we could see to the end of the block. There was nothing, there was no housing, there was absolutely nothing. It was all rubble of where houses had been burnt out or fell into disrepair and were knocked down. So rubble is, it's a true word. It's not an exaggeration. It's just the way it was. And one of the things that happened was there were many community organizations that got together 
there was a group called South Bronx Communities for Change. And they were the leaders in this. And many groups participated in developing affordable housing. Some of it, a couple of the buildings were sweat equity. Somewhere, how should I say? They were part of like a project. Like the group would say, I'm going to take this. They would get a certain number of blocks and they would work on getting a whole project. I'm not talking about New York City housing projects. Right, right. <laughs> I'm talking about newer um, development. Work. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so that was a big change. And it also then brought a more stable population into the neighborhood. And one of the things that a stable population is if you set down roots, then you also want to be part of change and improving the area. And setting down roots and growing. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Stability is included in that. So in your time at Mercy Center, I, I know you were there for quite a few years. You must have seen a transformation in just the people that, that came in the doors those first days and you know, through through the years and, and uh, you know, kids growing up into adults and, you know, just even a transformation, economic empowerment, educational empowerment. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, sure. I was at an event at Mercy Center last week and somebody introduced themselves to me and I said, oh, it's nice to meet you. And she kind of smiled and she said, well, you know, and she told me who her mother was because I knew her when she was in her mother's womb. And now she's a college graduate. And this particular young woman is going to, she's finished a nursing degree. And is so has a profession before her. And she did it herself. She did it with the support of her family. But she also did it with the support of Mercy Center and the opportunities that we provided every step along the way from her infancy right up to now being a college graduate. And some of the children that I knew from their earliest days are also employees now at Mercy Center, which is, again, something that's just marvelous to see. When we started Mercy Center, there were two women from the community who were founders with Mary Ann and it's kind of like watching them grow and seeing how community members grow. And they were able to give their experience and support in a very um, down-to-earth, practical way that would help the parents. Mm-hmm. Mercy Center provides a whole lot of programming for the community. And one in particularly important program is ESL. Tell us how that has helped to transform the people in that community and the, and the doors that that opens for people. Well, imagine being able to communicate or imagine first being able not to communicate and kind of have your eyes wide open and trying to figure out by body language what somebody is saying. So the first thing is actually learning the language, which is a connecting force. And then what happens from that is knowing the language opens up opportunities. So one of the things Mercy Center does is that classes in English are offered with specific job opportunities in mind. So, for example, there is a class in English for hospitality workers and what would the language needed for that job be. There's a class offered for those who are going into the health field and what is the um, specific language that is needed for that. So that's a a wonderful thing with the English as a second language. 
it's also open to up people who are needed immigrant services. So Mercy Center provides assistance for people who are studying for the citizenship exam or for people who are eligible for green cards. So from one thing of teaching English as a second language to moving towards English as a second language, which is specifically targeted for possible jobs, potential jobs, and then to regularizing status in the United States. It's kind of a, a progression that people can take advantage of if they're interested. And it must provide a tremendous sense of relief to people to A, be able to communicate, but to B, improve their immigration status. Definitely, definitely. And being able to communicate can range from something as communicating with my child's doctor or teacher, and then moving right up to studying for a particular English for a particular job field. And the ESL program, I guess, secondarily is a tool of economic empowerment because by being able to speak the language, people who are previously unemployed or perhaps only able to, you know, obtain low paying jobs were then able to go out and get a better paying job, be able to better support their family, just all around a win-win. Exactly. Exactly. Having an income changes your life. Well, this has been a very eye-opening and inspiring conversation, Mary. Thank you so much for what you and your group of agents of change have done in the community up there. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you. You're very welcome. So if you like our episode today, please like us, subscribe, and share us with your friends. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us at thehealthabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks very much. We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us today at The Healthability Project. We'd love to hear from you, so please email us your questions, comments, or suggestions, including future guests, to the Healthability Project at gmail.com. And please like us, subscribe, and share us with your friends.